Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I am joined by my friend Carl to wrap up our discussion of With Stillman movies. Last time, Carl, Eric Scott, and I, joined by our friend Flag Taylor, discussed Damsels in Distress, the great 2012 comedy. Now we are turning to 1998's Last Days of Disco, the story of a small group of young men and women just out of college. They're part of the preppy class, they have stellar educational credentials. Their conversation, however, often makes it ridiculously evident that their real education is lacking. They have begun working in Manhattan. Tom, played by Robert Sean Leonard, is an environmental lawyer. Best friends Alice and Charlotte, played by Chloe Sevigny and Kate Beckinsale, who are also the protagonists of Whit Stillman's latest movie, Love and Friendship, an Austin adaptation. They are readers in a publishing house, along with their socialist friend Dan, played by Matt Ross. Then there are the two alter egos of the protagonists of Whit Stillman's Barcelona, Jimmy Steinway, played by Mackenzie Astin, who works in advertising on Madison Avenue, and his friend who works at the disco club, Des, played by Whit Stillman favorite Chris Eigerman, who also appeared in Metropolitan, Stillman's debut in 1990. And then there is Josh, played by Matt Kislar, who works for the DA's office. They all have disco in common. That's what allows them to dance, to meet each other. At the club, they get to look good and to see flamboyant people. They get to drink and to have conversations, oscillating between group social life and ferocious pairing off. This was Whit Stillman's first attempt to picture an institution where young men and women would have to learn to deal with each other in helpful rather than destructive ways. The institution has to be both democratic, accessible to anyone, and aristocratic aristocratic or aspirational, aiming to bring out the best that young men and women can find beautiful and lovable. A dozen years after Last Days of Disco, Stillman came back with a far more complete description of such an institution, a fictional college in an utterly comic setting in Damsels in Distress. I recommend our podcast on that movie. In that case, the women are heroines looking to solve the problem for young men and young women. The damsels are trying to take control of their distress. In Last Days of Disco, they are just beginning to discover what they're looking for in love and friendship with the failure and sufferings that entails in a more realistic setting, without the protection that comedy ultimately affords its characters. And so with Damsels in Distress, but the other dance-themed movie, we've kept mentioning it, Last Days of Disco, not about the beginning, but about an ending. Mm-hmm. It was the movie with which, as you said, he ended his autobiographical movie-making and went into a long hiatus. This is a very different sort of movie because it is much more recognizable socially, and we get more clues about who these characters are socially. They are identified as cool job pleasures, likes and dislikes in a way that is true to 1980 New York City and America. And in Last Days of Disco you don't have a fictional setting and you don't have a fictional dance. It's a real setting. It's a club in New York and disco. And it's a real phenomenon. Yeah. There's a few adjustments. So there's not the fantastical elements of satire as there are in Damsels, but the club is made more conversational than the typical disco club would be. Even the elite disco club studio 54 which stillman attended he was there and stillman 
many times emphasizes the fact that you usually hear about Studio 54, all these wild happenings, the drug use, the person naked but in gold body makeup and elephants on the floor. He says, I was there and you saw those things occasionally, but most of the time it was just normal people putting on an aristocratic self for a night. So one thing that's important to say about disco up front, Last Days of Disco, is that Stillman did this strange thing of writing his own novelization of his own film. And there's a whole lot to say about what that means. You can purchase this book, and I highly recommend it if you're interested in Stillman. It's called The Last Days of Disco with Cocktails at Petrosian Afterwards. One of the things that's very clear from the novelization is that what is called the club in the film is in some ways based on Studio 54, but it's presented as dramatically being distinct and actually maybe inhabiting a slightly year or so later time frame than the actual Studio 54. So you're right, it's realism, but there's going to be a few adjustments to make things work dramatically. And the most important of those is that the conceit is that at the club, the sound men are such geniuses that they are able to focus the speakers on the floor in a way that allows these conversations to be possible in these little corners of the club. Yeah, so there's a sit-down part of the club, and mm -hmm. it's explicitly communal. There are not booths for two people. There are these areas around tables where six or ten people can sit comfortably with each other, and as you mentioned, they're somehow isolated. And that turns out to be very important because disco at its best, as it's presented by the Josh character in his first statement, is about cocktails, conversation, and dancing. Yes. You meet here everybody you know, and everybody you don't know. <laughs> everybody. <laughs> is here he says and that's of course deeply aspirational as people point out from the beginning of the movie nobody can get in anymore it's become so popular it has to keep most people out yeah there's practical reasons discussed in the film or even more so in the novelization about that exclusive door policy if you start to think about it you realize if they let everybody in it would just be the first comers that would fill up the club then there's an awful lot of discussion of the fact that mix of the crowd is an artistic creation, like a good salad or a good, you might say, music mix. The doorman is not just there to be a snob, he's there to select a group that will potentially mesh with one another on the dance floor, I guess with the club we might even say in terms of conversation. So one way of thinking about the club, I talked about this in a post I wrote for Postmodern Conservative, is that it's one of these instances of the aristocratic social impulse that we all have to form our special, maybe even exclusive groups that arises within democratic society. The club exacerbates your democratic hatred of inequality if you don't get in. But if you do get in, you like that because you're with the in crowd and so it has that dual function. Yeah, so you can have equality for a few people inside the club, but you can't have equality for everybody. And right. that means that you have to reject people. And indeed, we only are introduced to two of the young men who let in or don't let in, more or less, it seems, by their whim. And in the beginning, we're inclined to like Des because we follow him around. He's part of the protagonist group. And to dislike Van, who, who's always angry with him, always wants to get him fired. But at the end, Van actually ends up in the same situation as them, fired, going to the unemployment office, but also is part of the small group that hears the last speech in defense of Disco that Josh character gives. He is one of them in that sense. He knew what the club should be doing, and he was part of that, actually. He comes across in a very unflattering light as a nasty guy, to say nothing worse. 
but as you pointed out, selection is inevitable, it's necessary, but you don't necessarily do it well. He was part of what did it well, and he explains this clearly. He says, oh yeah, the club has a new owner. It went down fast. The guy just didn't know what to do with it. Yeah. Turns out that there are ways to do it badly, as I believe most of us would find out if you tried to open such a club. Yeah, that's uh, right. Maybe this is a moment to talk about what Stillman is saying about disco itself. So I think one of the first things about the film that's notable is the release was in 1998. You had a disco revival in the 90s, but I do remember it was often really emphasizing the tactics elements, the big bell-bottom pants and platform shoes and crazy stuff like that. And Stillman really, I want to thank him. He really made me think differently about disco. I remember disco when I was a sixth grader or so, 11 years old, when it was a fad. And I think my first album I ever bought was Saturday Night Fever. But I had been convinced over the years that disco was mindless, robotic. And Stillman really cured me of that misconception. He really shows that at its best, disco was a creative musical form. Is admitting that, of course, it can be dumbed down and become this mindless thing, but he makes the best case that he can for the initial disco trend. Disco's always going to be with us. There's always going to be this dance music kind of repetitive, and so I don't think we're ever going to get around the existence of disco or ever get past the need to resist the most reductive robotic forms of it. Just uh, very briefly, here's one way to connect it to Damsels in Distress. As I pointed out, the problem with protagonist Violet in Damsels is that she's no musician. Disco solved that problem. Disco was the first kind of music where you didn't need musicians. There was no band playing in the club, and the music itself did not require great skill. You didn't have to have the virtues of heavy metal guitarists or the virtues of great songwriters or great voices or any great instrumentation at all. Well, yes. And its repetitive element, of course, simplified things even further. Yes and no. Obviously, the move to disco, it's a downward slope from the quality of, say, the soul music of the 60s or the, the funk of the early 70s, and down even further, perhaps, from swing, the American songbook, those types of things. But Stillman makes a pretty good case for it through his soundtrack and discussion in the club. There's this broader worry that Stillman does not at all address in the film about what disco becomes over the long run. And there I think you could look to critics like Martha Bayless, or, or there's a wonderful essay by Jeffrey O'Brien in a book called Sonata for Jukebox. And they can give you the nightmare fears about what disco over the long term could become for us reductionist view towards sexuality and towards music. We really don't need musicians here. We can sample everything. That could be the direction of popular music, and disco might have been the first taste of that. But for what it was itself, I think Stillman's presentation is emphasizing the fact that it was taking really good funk and making it more classy. You would add strings to it. It wasn't so much the emphasis that you had maybe in the early 70s, where a funk band you would take as being very black power oriented, very attuned to the proletarian blacks of the inner city ghetto. Or on the other hand, maybe like George Clinton, really hippie, bizarro, crazy costumes. Disco people, starting maybe with some of those Philly hits they talk about, they seem to be Afro-Americans who want to emphasize this older Black tradition of going out on a Friday night in a ritzy way and really classing things up. 
those people wanted to show that they could be definitely African-American, but also classy and successful and aspiring at the same time. I think if you listen carefully to stuff by Sheik or Melvin and the Blue Notes, some of the other songs on the soundtrack, I think that's part of what was going on. And, and the conceit in Last Days of Disco is that the club is really zeroed in on the very best disco music bringing together the bodily and the classy in a way that really works. That's perfectly true and one way to look at it is compare Last Days of Disco in terms of look and social class with Saturday Night Fever. In Saturday Night Fever you have lower class Italian characters and then other ethnicities. They dress super flamboyant but are utterly tasteless and they behave in reprehensible ways and they are themselves concerned with the fact that they don't really have prospects, that the future is not going to be good for them. They're very worried about this. It comes mm-hmm. up in various ways, of course, especially for the main character played by John Travolta, but it's not just him. Whereas in Last Days of Disco, you have people who are aware they're not really upwardly mobile. They may be hated as yuppies or Wall Street types, ad men, what have you, but they don't actually have great prospects and they certainly have no great wealth or great property. But it is true that they are middle class in in every way. And their club, unlike the club in Saturday Night Fever, is full of men in suits and full of women who look a bit closer to the evening gown than Mm -hmm. to anything else. It is classed up in a way that's all-American, but it retains an aspirational character. There are some weirdos in better and worse ways, but you recognize them immediately as weirdos. True, but we should also just emphasize there's a mix that's multiracial that recognizes that disco comes out of an Afro-American tradition. And also, gays are there in some of the more flamboyant types and some of the less flamboyant ones. They're recognized by the club as an integral and important part of the scene and the music. So yeah, it's a democracy in that sense. Yeah, and all kinds of yeah. Americans fit in. Right. So you can have a guy in a suit rubbing up against someone dressed maybe really flamboyantly like in Saturday Night Fever or a gay person acting very flamboyantly. And that makes perfect sense on the dance floor. It's the type of salad or mixture that the club is seeking. These people get a charge off of one another and their differences and I guess their commonalities too. So the club really becomes this interesting natural aristocracy that democratic people can aspire to, but they have to show some excellence to get into the club through their fashions or something suggests that they're interesting or that they're in touch with the musical vibe of the place so that would be my aristocratic defense of so it's not clear how you fit in it's clear that you have to select for fitting in but it's not quite clear what those criteria are and i believe the reason is that they ultimately don't stand up but there is a feel to it partly you are looking for diversity partly it's something else people have to strut their stuff some yes they have to show off either in a classy or a vulgar way both are welcome in various mixes And outside of that, you also have to have a certain confidence, for example, by showing up in a taxi. That just gives you a bit more authority all of a sudden. And that's also looked for. Another one is you can't get stuffy. You can be there in a suit, but it had better look dandy. If you come Mm -hmm. in there like one older gentleman does in an older gentleman's suit, it's no go. You see what they're looking for, but also how deeply uncertain it is. People are going to come in the back way if they can't get in the front way, for one. For another, not even the people we see most often in the club are at all sure that they'll get in there. The mix is continuously changing and the judgment is just unreliable. And so this mix of aristocracy and democracy just is not going to work. Yeah, that's interesting. So I've outlined as just general defense of the disco genre as it exists in those 77 to 81. 
but it's also defended as a pretty successful revival of a lot of the key elements of the social dance pattern. Several of the characters say explicitly dies out in this period of about 1969 to 1976. The Josh character early on, he says, speaking to Tom, the thing that excited me about these early disco hits was that I knew dance clubs would follow and that would rectify this terrible lack of social life and dancing that we experienced in our college years. We can actually pretty precisely pinpoint these years using evidence from the film. It really was 69-ish to the start of disco. If you think about Stillman's body of work, obviously the thing that comes to mind is Metropolitan. It's an older form. It's an actual aristocracy. And it cultivates social dancing also. Key character Metropolitan, Tom Townsend, is kind of introduced to this world. He winds up loving it. But the title of that film could have been The Last Days of the Debutante Dances. Yes. I think you can pinpoint it to somewhere in the 60s, even though Stillman is often cagey about this. Stillman also says in the audio commentary on Metropolitan, he says, I wanted to have two halves of the parties before Christmas and the parties afterwards. And the parties afterwards are called Orgy Week. He wanted to bring out behaviors associated with the sexual revolution or the 60s generally some of the drug use or the strip poker that became the publicity shot for Metropolitan. Yes. So it's a reflection on American society. What happened with the Summer of Love and the hippies? Where did that go and how did that eventually resurface as disco in some ways better in some ways worse? And of course, the most interesting young girl in Metropolitan, as you mentioned, does show up in Last Days of Disco. Now she's in publishing and right. she's fairly well respected, Audrey is. And she does look like a classy woman. Not exactly middle-aged, but not exactly in her prime anymore. So you get to see it. Time has passed. Right. If you do the math, it's going to have to push the Metropolitan date in the 60s. What matters is that we think of the sexual revolution or the 60s generally as being this very glamorous thing. And all this excitement was happening and people were, of course, they were dancing. But the strange thing that the characters in Last Days say is that, at least in the immediate aftermath of the 60s, it caused this social disconnection and it killed social dance. And one way that happens, of course, is that the Deb dances of Metropolitan are no more. Not that those were available for most people anyhow. Obviously, there would be exceptions to this. We could look at the typical blacks and what was going on with Soul Train. They're obviously still dancing. But for Stillman's peer group, apparently those years had few opportunities for social dance, for conversational connection. And Stillman himself endorses this in his own voice in some of his interviews. He talks about the fact that the late 60s or very early 70s, there were some nightclubs. He mentions hippopotamus that you could go to and it was nice. And then there was just nothing for a long while. So I think in last days, disco, when it's presented as perhaps being a movement by Josh, at least for some of its adherents, in some ways that's ridiculous, but in some ways that's pretty serious, that people were deliberately trying to revive pre-sexual revolution patterns of social dance and socializing. Now, obviously that comes with accepting the drug use, like the sexual revolution. Those things are front and center in disco. Yes. But things like dramatic theatrical rock music or drugs that are going to make you ponder things deeply or put you in this vibe beethoven type primality and listening to Jimi hendrix and it's so heavy 
That is fatal to the dance and to socializing and conversation. So something new needs to be put out there. And for these characters, at least disco, for a brief window of time, is that thing. Unlike the attempted revival of social dance in Damsels, it's successful in disco. It's a big nationwide fad, and it really happens. Yeah, that's where it stands to the debutants. On the one hand, it's nowhere near as graceful, and it's way full of all sorts of ugly and even criminal things. On the other hand, it's a real national phenomenon, not just the exclusive property of upper-middle-class types. So that's the better and the worse from the point of view of America. Disco itself is self-conscious about this. In The Last Days of Disco, the Charlotte character, who is a fairly nasty young woman, but also very attractive, tends to lie when she speaks about herself and tell the truth, if ugly truths, about other people. She's very perceptive and does a bit of Sherlock Holmes deductions here and there in the plot. Mm -hmm. She's very sharp. She says those people at Woodstock, they were so conceited, yeah. they had no idea how to dance. Yeah. And that's with Stillman's judgment on what the summer of love and the sexual liberation is music turned towards and why it was such a failure, although it was supposed to be a new democracy, a new love, a new social experience that would be all-inclusive. And in these ways, he judges it to have been a failure. And you're right that also the Josh character and others mentioned that in their college years, they were looking for dancing and it wasn't there. You see this in other ways, like they contemplate going to other clubs and they do one night end up in another club, Rex's, and you see that there's no attraction there, there's no liveliness, there's nothing to speak to youth's love of beauty and showing off. You can do a little dancing and you can sit around at some bar tables and do a bit of drinking or talking. Well, it's not as great and up-to-date and glamorous the way the club is, but this is a little more vivid in the novelization. Rex's is actually defended by Stillman as a place where some of these older social dancing conventions have been kept. The Charlotte character is convinced that, well, no one dances at Rex's, but actually when they get there, there's these old soul and a ska or rock steady songs that are playing, and there actually is some good dancing. In the film, she herself ends up dancing. There. Yeah, she enjoys it too. So that statement about the Woodstock generation, none of those people can dance, is of course unqualified and thus an exaggeration. There were pockets where people preserved social dance here and there. But Stillman, nonetheless, is endorsing the theory there, that there really was this dearth of dancing. It had something to do with the conceitedness, the aggressive hedonism, the drug use of 60s rock, 60s hippiedom. And I think some of this works its way through the plot of Last Days of Disco. This is a group of friends. They're sometimes friends and sometimes not, and they're not really a group. There are several different kinds of groups, and the only stability they have at any point actually is as couples. That's mm -hmm. part of the discussion in Last Days of Disco. There's social life, group social activity, and then there's ferocious pairing off is the phrase that Charlotte and then Alice and then others use to describe the erotic intensity that brings two people together to the exclusion of anybody else. And that is the legacy of the sexual revolution ruining even this group of friends. They cannot help themselves. Their erotic connections are so strong, so fast, even though they don't last, they make it impossible to have a group of friends. And they also introduce, of course, sexual competition, which also ruins the friendship. Mm -hmm. And they also encourage people to judge each other on their sexual expectations. They can like each other too much or dislike each other too much because of this erotic potential. That's how you see the unfolding of the erotic revelation of the Summer of Love. 
it's ruining it for this group of friends and at the end they're not a group of friends anymore they resolve again as potential couples as people left out of potential couples and they fall apart that i believe is the way that the story works out the social and musical and in a sense political happenings of the 60s yeah i think you're absolutely right when i watch this film i get very exhilarated and excited by it because that idea of the group social life and erotic possibility being interwoven is i think for a lot of people pretty exciting and it's very glamorous, and there's moments where it really clicks. There's that one beautiful moment where Tom meets Alice on the dance floor, and the dancing is really good. There's clearly a connection. It seems idyllic, but quickly we see there's this underside to things that's very depressing. And you're so right about the group social life. Even when Charlotte says this thing about we should have a group social life, if you think about the plot, well, that's the moment when she decides to go for Jimmy Steinway and make him her man. She's not even really sincere about wanting group social life. It's for the sake of catching one particular man. And you're right, yeah. there's intense competition and backbiting. The whole situation threatens the friendship of Jimmy and Dez and some of the other characters as well. Friendship remains a possibility, um, particularly between some of the male characters. I saw this through a couple writings by Peter Law. The themes of nature versus grace pop up. Alice's character gets incurable herpes, which is going to prevent her from having children. It's a terrible, horrible thing. But there's a strange way in which it turns out maybe to be something that helps her have a good relationship with Josh. This is Peter Lawler's argument. So we just have to say there's a lot that turns out to be going on. It's not simply a tale of how the sexual revolution and its eroticism undermine these characters. There's some happy ending. At different levels, the characters do get fairly happy endings, or at least the possibility of going on with something that might turn out to be good for them. Alice and Josh pairing off, that seems like there's a future there. With Des and Charlotte, in as much as they have futures, it's going to be a part. Des, yeah. whose abortive trip to Barcelona announces his real departure to Barcelona, cannot have a future with Charlotte, who's thinking about her future in TV in ways that have nothing to do with him. So also with Jimmy, he actually lives for Barcelona, which announces the other film Barcelona. He's done with these guys. Just see it falling apart, but it is true that in another sense, their suffering makes them more serious about how to deal with their longings and the only one that really falls out is a bad guy, or at any rate, he cannot be part of this group when they have their moment of togetherness and the speech about disco that's tom who is the most successful and environmental lawyer travels around he's a harvard kid i guess yeah he's prestigious i think almost all the guys here are harvard yeah yeah but turns out to be a scoundrel again charlotte warns alice about this in one of her many cassandra moments these people can perfectly turn into assholes too he cannot be part of this. Is he's done damage and they just brought nothing good to the table, however appealing he seemed at some point. On the other hand, Josh and Alice begin to respect each other and fall in love in a more graduated, less enthusiastic and less desperate way. They're not jumping into things because they've learned both about each other, their vulnerabilities, and they have learned about themselves that they have problems and that they need help that cannot come except from another human being if you could find somebody who would love you even if they knew that at some level you're broken or damaged. There is a happy ending, especially for Josh and Alice, that seems based on grace. 
that is to say the transformation of something bad they're deeply unhealthy she in the body he in the mind mm -hmm. but through science and through their own learned lessons they could come together their coming together is partly accidental or based on grace and so also their future is not fully in their hands it is also remarkably equal Josh is the most political of all the characters in as much as he's an assistant DA, but on the other hand, he's the most reluctant and least manly in as much as he has no assertiveness in his personal life. He becomes mm. assertive as an assistant DA and helps break down the club. The man who most believes in the movement disco is the man who brings down the hammer on the actual disco club. He says, I would want once in my life to say, book this clown. And he eventually does, specifically about Bernie, the guy who runs the club, owns it. Yeah, it's that's very him. interesting. I don't think Josh knew that ending this club would end disco per se or make the possibility of a new club impossible. But that's certainly mm -hmm. significant that the biggest believer in the club has a key role in bringing it down. Well, he has no way around it. It turns out, this is an accident, that Bernie squealed on every other club owner who was doing drugs or doing other illegal things, not declaring right. the money. All the illegalities come back to destroy all this. Of course, the illegalities are one thing, the immorality is another thing. In other ways, the clubs did open up good possibilities, not just about being immoral, not just about being criminal. As a space, the criminality is relegated to the top and the bottom and not the middle. At the bottom, there's all this hidden money that's supposed to be shipped off to Switzerland. Yeah. And on the top, there's drugs. The owner himself at the end is proved to have been involved with it. There's Des, who's a cokehead at some point. But not in the middle where these people are. They're not yeah. shown to be aware or participating in this. And lots of them are surprised. Yeah. So yeah. there is good there. And Josh is right that this is real. It's just that the basis on which is organized is unsustainable. We are also told that something soured in the nation. This is the only with Stillman movement with a historical sequence. You can time the death of Disco to the moment when he uses actual footage of the event of burning all the Disco yeah. records at the yeah. ball game that shows this ugly ferocity in Americans. As Democrats, as a people, they have decided to burn Disco records on a baseball field. This was a stunt set up, but I forget which team owner. But it degenerated when once they started burning down the vinyl after the 16th inning or what have you the people in the stands who had come specifically for violence went down the field destroyed the batting cage there were fights or crazy stuff going on it quickly turned into exactly what it was a mob the guy thought it was a stunt to be anti-disco but it just unleashed a mob that's one thing that tells you disco is dead aside from the plot the other one is the sales of disco records the bottom fell out on them you're told yeah if you look at it carefully, some of these events don't entirely line up, but I think you're right to point to that moment of the disco sales dropping precipitously. People date that to around late 1980 or somewhere in 1981. Yes. And that works with Stillman's dramatic dates for his film. We should remind ourselves of this. We've been following Stillman, bringing out a lot of the good sides of disco. In some ways, the drop in its popularity reflects the fact that it's just one of these trends that got overdone. And disco is a fairly repetitive music. A lot a lot of the songs sound very similar and the public just got fed up now part of that was blended in with this anti-gay anti-black animus that came out in that demolition disco night at, at comiskey park but it's worth saying that disco's quality as a music has its limit <laughs> now, yes that's true and i think the point is that success did not improve it yeah if you want to get into a music critic perspective one of the things that's often said is that hip-hop which was in the wings at this time returned dance music to a greater rhythmic complexity and there's something to be said for that 
You mentioned the love triangle, I guess we should call it quadrangle or... Yeah, it's a sophisticated moving uh, polygon. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess I do want to say at least one thing about that is that for people watching this film, the thing to think about most vividly is the fact that Alice becomes the center of attention and she could have wound up potentially with four or five different guys. You mentioned Tom, who when he breaks off with her, it doesn't... Well, it's not the initial breakup, but he treats her very poorly in a couple of ways. But is otherwise described as interesting, good catch type of guy. And there is obviously the man she winds up with, Josh. They're both, in a way, making sacrifices. Josh has to marry a woman who's not going to be able to bear children for him. And she marries a man who has to take this lithium salt to stay on an even key for his, his mental illness. In the novelization, you learn they stay married, they're a happy couple, but it wasn't there was a moment where he had to go off of that lithium and they struggled. They had some hard times where he fell back in depression. As you put out, they're both defective in certain ways. The other possibilities are Jimmy Steinway, Des, and the socialist Dan character at one point and seemed interested in Alice. And it's worth thinking about why she makes the choices she does. And probably the most interesting choice there is why does she pursue Des, or at least is open to Des's advances for a little while. I mean, you see them kissing in that one balcony scene. And why does she not ultimately choose him and instead choose Josh? I think we're agreed about Josh. He's the only one who's really a stand-up guy. He's the truth of which she is merely the prejudice. I wanted just to briefly describe an argument that was made by Peter Lawler. There's a good book on the Stillman movies called Doomed Bourgeois in Love, and he's got another piece called Disco and Democracy at the end of one of his books called Homeless and at Home in America. And in this piece, he works with the novelization pretty carefully, and he has an argument that poses Des as an option against Josh as an option. We've talked about Josh as an option for Alice. Des is interesting because he wants Alice as a way of reforming himself. He recognizes himself as being out of control, his drug use, most importantly, his erotic life, his manipulation and exploitation of women. And this is connected perhaps to some ambiguity about his own sexual orientation. He's the character that says, well, I might be gay. But the important thing is he wants Alice as a moment of grace. If he has Alice, he can turn himself around. So his key line in the movie is when he questions the idea of to your own self be true. He says, what if your own self is pretty bad? He wants to reform. Alice is his chance for that, but he loses Alice. The character who wants and needs grace in a way doesn't get it. Something similar happens with the Charlotte character, maybe. She's the one, after all, who sings the hymn Amazing Grace towards the end of the film, in contrast with Alice's own slight hostility, you might say, to Christian religion or the fact that Josh would sing a hymn or use it as a mantra. So I highly recommend that Lawler essay as a way of exploring this possibility. Lawler says that Stillman on these themes actually covers his tracks. And I can report to you, Stillman says about, for example, Charlotte singing Amazing Grace, he suggests there's nothing there. He says, well, Charlotte's like this person you meet who's always performing one-upsmanship on you. And when it's time to be sexually liberated, she's the most sexually liberated. When the trend is towards religion, she's more religious than you are. And maybe that's the way we're to understand it. But by Lawler's interpretation, Stillman is putting up a smokescreen. There's something deeper at work with the nature and grace last days of disco.
Yeah. Well, everybody can tell that Whit Stillman is an ironic man. He's a satirist. He's a yeah. dissembler. There's no reason to take him entirely as trustworthy and in a professional <laughs> mode. Yeah. And Charlotte, of course, doesn't just sing that hymn. She is thinking about having children. Yeah. There is something in her that's transformative. She does, in some ways, realize that she's losing stuff. She's losing her friends because she's been such a nasty person. There's no reason to believe that her suffering and her anguish aren't genuine. Of course, especially if you think about it this way, it's a matter of one-upmanship. There's no look for suffering there. Her suffering is her own. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. genuine humanity. And I believe Peter Lawler made a great point about this, that the suffering shouldn't be neglected. The suffering of these characters deepens them. Whereas the Alice character, in certain ways, is dislikable and hasn't really shed her prejudices. She may have learned that cool job, attractive Harvard guy might be an asshole and somebody who treats her badly and can't stop treating her badly, actually. He sometimes hurts her unintentionally because he is so unaware of himself and at the same time too mm -hmm. obsessed with himself. Yeah. But she doesn't have enough respect for Josh's suffering. As an audience, we like him way more than she does because we see he does right. He is the agent of justice. And he's willing to sacrifice his job in the most unostentatious but risky way to help a friend who doesn't deserve it. This doesn't get grace in the form of Alice saving him and marrying him. He does get grace in the form of his friend Josh, whom he trashed throughout the story, losing his job to save his ass. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Josh also makes sure that he can't leave the country as a coward, as he intends to do. Mm -hmm. As Des prepares to abandon the country, as you pointed out, he says, what if yourself sucks? You shouldn't be true to that self. But he nevertheless is. He talks about himself, I'm running like a rat, and nevertheless does it. Who saves him from himself at his worst then as well? Again, it's Josh. Yeah, yeah. He does get that kind of grace. And maybe that's why he can't get the other kind. He's just not ready. Yeah, well, I think Alice is fairly admirable throughout the film. But I think when you do think about it, as Lawler's essay forces you to do, you do realize there's a sort of determination to be self-sufficient on her part. And she's not all that virtuous in some ways. She's dishonest in the way she has her greatest success with this book about a guy who's fraudulently claiming to be or to know the Dalai Lama. She rejiggers it into a self-help book. So and That shows the utterly mediocre cultural aspirations in the movie. There is no relief there. Yeah. As literature or poetry, they're utterly mediocre and she turns out to be a self-seeking careerist. And that's just not admirable. Right. But what Lawler says... By the way, he mentions that actually in the novelization, there's a brief indication that Charlotte is more serious literary-wise than we otherwise are led to believe. She's a reader of Anthony Trollope, some other serious novelists. But with the Alice character, what Lawler says is that the grace, in a way, is through the H infection is what makes her say, well, maybe I should consider Josh. Because in a way, our defective characters complement one another. It's a good match. So that brings her to the wisdom to say, well, you know, there's always some baggage in a serious relationship or a marriage the yes. other person is bringing. And so Alice gets there, but she gets there through this curse, this blessing of the H infection. And Lawler makes us wonder, well, what if she hadn't gotten that? Maybe she would have wound up with a Tom or a Des. She's more conventional in her upper-class aspirations than anybody else's, and she's less able to organize anything than the other characters. Mm. She's just not good in that part of the world. Well, she's good in book publishing. 
in that one specific way. She screwed them over badly, but then she came up with a way to turn one fraud into another kind of fraud. She went from illegitimate or scandalous fraud to legitimate or bestseller fraud. Okay, yeah, I guess I have a, a more positive impression of her overall. Yeah, I'm emphasizing that as a counterbalance. I do agree that she's fairly decent throughout, and she deals better with being rejected or treated badly than anybody except Josh. That's the way in which he is superior to her. He has magnanimity. She has none of it. Somebody mm -hmm. treats her badly like Charlotte does, eventually she rejects her and gets rid of her. Which is perfectly understandable. It's also respectable in a certain way. She stands up for herself, but there's nothing of the magnanimity that the Josh character shows. Right. Yeah. Th there's a kind of story-created standard of judgment in that moral sense. And yeah. I'm not sure she's aware she should be looking up to this guy, but she should be. And as an audience, we are aware of it. Yeah, maybe we should talk about either the Des character or the Charlotte character a little bit more. We'll go with Charlotte. Most viewers will see her as pretty repellent and as someone they wind up hating and don't enjoy the process of learning to hate her either. But there are some hints that there's more with Charlotte than meets the eye. She offers this gospel of being in control as a young, liberated woman. She has that speech overlooking the disco floor saying, we can make things happen the way we want to. But it turns out she fails at that utterly. She can't make anything happen the way she wants to. She's fired from her publishing job. She can't get Jimmy Steinway. And there's other failures. There's a way in which behind her very brittle bitchiness, there's some real fragility and awareness of her neediness that comes out in that moment where she sings the hymn. And that's different from Alice. She's the only one who mentions her parents. Their parents are mentioned as the daddy who subsidizes your New York living. Right. Not that there's much to it, but it's there. She does mention her parents. They're divorced. Yeah, that affected her in some way. And she says, it's just a universal truth. People don't like to be criticized. I think that's why my parents divorce. And that sounds like yet another one of the superficial things she says. But the superficial things are always true. They're often nasty or always nasty, but they're always true. It's things about herself or her plans or her desires or her gospel of self-actualization, as you put it. Those are the fake ones. When she notices things offhand, whether it's Woodstock or her parents, she always speaks the truth. And as I mentioned before, when she does her bit of sleuthing to figure out that her friend Alice has sexually transmitted diseases, she also is very sharp and very clever, and it's true. It's an awful thing to say about somebody in public in the company of their common acquaintances, but it's true. The, the morality and the intelligence are separated there. She's way cleverer than she seems and more insightful. And of course, then there is the fact that she's the one who says what is true about Alice, that there is good coming out of her disease. It's a shameful disease, it's a harmful disease, but there will be good coming out of it. She's wrong about how. Yes. I think she's right about her parents, and that is the source of her trouble. She says people don't like to be criticized. And at some point she becomes aware of the fact that that's why people hate her. She's always been criticizing people. She thinks she can get out of her parents' predicament. Don't become them. Don't get married. Don't be involved in this. But in another way, by rising above that level. And her competitiveness is about that. She wants to be the best so that she'll be loved. She's trying harder than anybody else in her attempt to put other people down, although by speaking the truth, is again showing that she wants to be above everybody else so that she's not in danger. It's the equality of her parents that led them to their divorce. That's mm. the problem there. She doesn't want to be in that situation. Her self-control is about not being caught in a cycle of mutual recriminations.
she mm. wants to be in a situation where nobody can tell her she is not good enough. And this is something she has in common with Des, who does know that he's worse than everybody else. But the way he reacts to other people is he is angry at how judgy they are. They're judgmental. Who are they to judge him? He wants to bring them down for that reason. Mm -hmm. Josh saves him, but this kept calling him a nutcase freakazoid and wacko and a loon. And when Josh spoke his mind about how young people should be thinking about love and character and so forth, he started telling everybody that he's had these events, that he is mentally unhealthy because of some disease. He has to take lithium salts mm -hmm. just to stay sane. Neither him nor Charlotte can deal with being equals with other people and other people having a kind of moral superiority to them. Well, I think part of the issue with Des and sensitivity towards moral criticism is that he knows that he deserves it, but he also, and this again, is much more hinting at this in the novelization. There's a suggestion that his womanizing is at least partially a fault of nature that's compelled upon him. This works particularly well if you posit, as Lawler does, that Des is on a nice edge in terms of social, sexual orientation. And that part of the way he pushes against his uncertainty there is to be aggressively womanizing. That's that there, a good point. There's a sense that there might be something naturally messed up with Des. He hasn't dealt with it correctly. He's a moral failure in that sense. But maybe he's aware that people would be less judgmental of me if they knew the full situation. So yeah, that, that's I, I a possibility that's with this. Having a disease, suffering in some way that is not under your control, is also the case, as it turns out, with Alice. You learn that it's the case with Josh. It's not rare in the movie. It turns out that your choices are somehow tied up with your body. You cannot fully escape your limitations. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to get serious about that, which this is incapable of being. It's also a matter of where you stand to the society, not just where your opinions stand to your body. This is unlucky. He's in a situation where sexual liberation is in, sexual promiscuity is in. That just plays to his worst instincts. There's nothing playing to his better instincts. He never gets help that way. But right. the social situation really does not favor him. That is also true. Just like the fact that her social situation seems to favor her, in the case of Charlotte, turns out not to be true. The social situation only favors her in the sense that it does seem like she's going to make it in television. She just has the personality for it. She's an egomaniac, let's say, with charm. <laughs> yeah. But the social situation doesn't favor her in the other ways. She thinks that if you can be queen of your disco club, you'll be successful at life. But it turns out that she can't even get the man she wants or children if that's what she wants or friends to stick with you because they're so impressed with how much greater than them you seem. In all those ways, she fails. On the other hand, with Alice, it does seem like her social situation does help her. Her failures are her own. She is too prejudiced starts with way too high opinion of Tom, for example. And she's also too gullible in some ways. She takes advice from Charlotte when she really knows she shouldn't. But she does have the what it takes to make it, to become fairly happy by meeting somebody through this club, through her group of friends within and without the club. She's got options, actually. Yeah, the novelization has this chapter where the characters meet 20 years or 15 years later. Two things are striking. One is that none of the characters have had children. Now, we knew this was going to be the case with Josh and Alice. Turns out there's still something of a friendship between Des and Jimmy that's been salvaged. But there's one person who's not there. That's Charlotte. No one knows what happened to Charlotte. We don't know. Did Charlotte at some point find some grace that allowed her to turn around? 
Was she the one character who, as she expressed the desire for, that actually winds up with children? Wow. The novelization leaves us hanging. That's one little tidbit I'll leave you with, and maybe it's an incentive for people to explore this fascinating novel based on a movie. It's also a habit. Wood Stillman has also done a novelization of his new and fifth movie, Love and Friendship, which came yeah. out last year. Yeah, I haven't and read that yet. That also seems very interesting, if more ironic. Seems Hopefully we'll record the podcast talking about Love and Friendship as well. Yeah, I mean, Stillman really is pioneering some new artistic forms. There's a case to be made that what he does with dialogue in films is something uniquely new. And certainly this idea of novelizing your own script hasn't been tried before. And Both work independently and together they work off charmingly, even though they have differences that you notice, or especially for that reason, it's very interesting. Yeah. Perhaps the films suit themselves to that because they have so much dialogue. Yeah. This is good news about culture in an immediate way. So we'll record the conversation on uh, the one we've both written about at some length, Love and Friendship. That'd be wonderful. I decide, the like Jane that. Austen of America with Stillman finally adapts a Jane Austen novel. And, uh, <laughs> it's quite amazing, I would say. And it sent me thinking about Jane Austen and her own development as a novelist. Very Thanks good. again. We have had very long conversations today and I hope people enjoy this, watch the movies and discover something new, whether it's the movies or the novel. And let's do this again. Okay. Okay, looking forward to it. Great.